to Royals Review Radio. I'm the editor of Royals Review, Max Reaper, and joining me as usual is co-host Sean Newkirk. Sean, do I even have to ask you about how you felt about Game of Thrones? The, <laughs> the series finale? You loved oh, it, right? You know how you know how I, I'm always positive and optimistic about everything all the time <laughs> yeah that that exactly the same for game of thrones exactly yeah we had a so if you go to our site we have a little bit of an off-topic article on the uh, the series finale and yeah there's just everyone loved it it was uh, nothing but positive comments in that thread so uh definitely check that out also joining us is alex duvall who not only writes for us at royals review but also at royals farm report alex how are you doing tonight Doing great, Max. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, well, we're kind of lucky to have you on tonight because we, uh, we're we going to ramp up our draft coverage now with the draft only a few weeks away, and so I want to have you and Sean on uh, to talk about the draft, and we'll do that in a little bit. But first, I wanted to talk about the first week of the Nicky Lopez era. Nicky Lopez was called up last week, and we got to see him in action in a Royals uniform for the first time. And a pretty, pretty impressive performance so far. Uh, the, the team itself is not doing so well. He hasn't exactly turned around their fortunes as they lost uh, four to the first six games since he joined the team. But he's handled himself pretty well, hitting 320 in his first six games, 393 on base, uh, 440 slug, three walks and three strikeouts and 28 plate appearances. And Alex, what's, what's kind of been your general impression of Nicky so far? Uh, is he, has he been kind of everything as advertised, in, at least in the first six games? Yeah, and that's that's the thing. He's been exactly as advertised, and you know he's hitting three twenty right now with a three sixty four Babbitt. So I mean, if that's the batting average on ball and play that he's going to run up, he's going to hit three twenty. Um, great bat control, um, not striking out. I mean, it, it's been six games, right? But he's not going to strike out much. The ball's going to be in play. Um, he takes his walks, and anymore when you get a guy like Nicky Lopez, whose whose game is to put the ball in play a lot of contact, no strikeouts, they don't really walk either because they're 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 early in the count. They're not getting the two strikes, but not the case for him. He'll take his fair share of walks, high OBP guy. So um, he's been exactly as advertised, um, and, and it's, it's really been refreshing to see um, some of that contact, some of that speed, and just that, that old Royals way, I guess, for some of us old-school fans to be back in the lineup a little bit. It was interesting. Sam Ellinger wrote a little bit about uh, Lopez this week and his high contact approach, and he was talking about how when when Nicky gets two strikes, well, first of all, he has a really good idea of what he's doing up there before he gets to two strikes. But then when he does get to two strikes, he kind of widens his stance a little bit, uh, chokes up on the bat, and, and really put, you know, does a really good job of putting the ball in play. And and I don't know. And, and kind of Ellinger seemed to conclude is that it's kind of hard to teach this. There's no real secret. I mean, he was like. Lopez didn't grow up like having awesome hand-eye coordination or anything. It was just something he kind of developed along the way. But it is kind of surprising to me that the Royals haven't really been able to develop a high-contact hitter. In fact, if you look at their minors right now, it's full of like free-swinging guys. Uh, so I don't know. It's just kind of interesting they, they haven't really taken that approach or at least maybe tried to teach that approach. Or, and maybe that's something that's not really teachable at the professional level. Hey, Sean, what's, what's kind of been your impression? And are you kind of surprised he's hitting second in the lineup so far? Yeah, and I think Yo said he did that with Ryan Braun. Let me a little different hitter, Ryan Braun and Nicky Lopez, um, uh, as far as Yost back in uh, Milwaukee. But um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I wouldn't call it straight up trial by fire because let's be honest, the difference between uh, sixth and ninth, maybe fifth and ninth in this lineup <laughs> is 
isn't a isn't much of a difference so i think really anywhere works and you know if that's the long term i mean yeah i, I don't know where i would put him but if that's the long-term position they think he'll be at in the lineup then you know I, I think it makes sense the whole point of this season is just development so you know what even if they put him at two and, and lopez fails you know quote-unquote fails then it's really not uh, a big deal because the whole point is just to see kind of let guys play effectively yeah, Soren Petro on 810 today was like mildly critical of Lopez hitting second just because he thought that was like so much pressure on a kid making his debut. Yeah, but I'm like, right. you know, how much pressure can there be for a team that's like losing two out of every three games and is already well out of the pennant race? You know, I, I get it. But I, you know, I think Lopez seems like the kind of guy that could kind of actually kind of thrive under the pressure, like uh, could use and you know, like high expectations to kind of live up to. Um, you know, just because he, you know, he has a. Like, you know, he has all the intangibles and he has a, a gamer out there. Uh, Alex, you had kind of an interesting article last week. You know, we, last week we talked a little bit about how the explanation on why they were kind of delaying Nicky Lopez being up there and then kind of did it total about face uh, and then called him up like a few days later. We talked a little bit before about, you know, how we felt, felt that was kind of strange. And you, you had an interesting theory uh, that you thought maybe ownership intervened. You want to talk about that a little bit, and, and what, what you thought about the whole decision-making process behind calling up Lopez after they had already, you know, made a statement saying they wouldn't. Yeah, and I, I do want to make it clear to the, to the listeners that that calling up Lopez in and of itself was not my reason for the theory. It was more, like you said, it was they were so adamant that he wasn't coming up, and they were so adamant that there wasn't the opportunity yet, and they were so adamant that he was going to be fine in AAA. And then literally two days later, well, he's coming up. And Dayton, so what kind of triggered me and what kind of led me down this rabbit hole was Dayton calls a, a, a conference call with all the beat writers and says, hey, guys, I'm sorry. Um, things change sometimes. Like that doesn't sound like a guy who just changed his mind and was, you know, I'm in charge. I can do what I want and I change my mind. That sounds like, you know, like like if I told you and Sean, hey guys, let's go get a beard later tonight. We'll go hang out, and then my wife says, "Hey, not gonna happen." Like that sounds like somebody else ruled over him. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, like it, it just didn't sound like a guy that changed his mind. It, it sounded like like he was apologizing for someone else or on the behalf of someone else. And it, it was the about faith that got me. The Royals attendance on Mother's Day with the Phillies in town was pitiful. Uh, so man I, I don't know I just the way this organization has been so philosophical and so plan oriented and about the process and everything that they've ever done to turn an about face like that just it's not something they ever do which is why you know I started looking for other explanations I guess, I guess I'm, I'm doing oh, I'm ahead. doing it in silence here, the Jack Nicholson head nodding from anger management. <laughs> yes. Welcome. Welcome to the dark side. Yes. yes. Yeah, and I think it just kind of, you know, whatever the reasoning was, it just kind of highlights the point I think I made last week about how they just didn't really seem to have like a structured plan in place to deal with the Nicky Lopez promotion, whether it was, you know, ownership stepping in and said you have to call him up, you know, or, um, you know, getting buy-in from Whit Merrifield or, or just, you know, the things that changed over the weekend. 
it just didn't seem like they had like a clear path of like, okay, we are going to call them up in June and, and ownership's on, on board with this and Whit Merrifield's on board with this and we're all on the same page. Instead, it just kind of seemed like, you know, you can't just call a press conference on Friday and then <laughs> make a decision that this totally contradicts that a few days later. So, yeah, it was, it was very odd because it feels like the Dayton Moore era has been kind of clear of that kind of um, kind of wishy-washiness and, and ownership intervention. I mean, I think people forget when the Glass family first bought the team, they were, they were intervening quite a bit. I mean, they supposedly nixed a trade for Joe Randa at one point. Uh, intervened to prevent the team from re-signing Carlos Beltran at one point. Uh, so they were kind of meddling a little too much. And I think one of the uh, points that Dayton Moore made sure to get when he got hired was, okay, you guys have to back off. So um, if they are, inter- and we don't know, I mean, this is just kind of a theory that you came up with, but if they are interviewing once again, that may be a, a bad sign for the Royals and, and maybe, a, a you know, Dayton Moore, we'll see how, how long Dayton Moore wants to, deal with that um uh as a as a general manager too so um so the call-up of nicky lopez has fans kind of thinking about you know who's next among the call-ups and i think most of the eyes have turned to bubba starling uh starling you know the former first round pick is off to a great start for omaha he's hitting 355 uh 48 slugging percentage three home runs and there was some speculation he might get called up after he wasn't in the lineup on sunday in omaha Turns out it was just a little bit of neck stiffness, and instead they called up a reliever on on Tuesday. Alex, do you do you think it's quite Bubba time, or do you think we're gonna have to wait a little bit longer? No, it's gonna be a while, I think. And I wrote about this over at Royals Farm Report recently that you know he's just he's it doesn't appear that he's hitting the ball with any authority. I was at the game uh, a couple Fridays ago. I watch a lot of Omaha's games, and it's a lot of singles. Um, in the article that I wrote, I put his spray chart. Um, from MLB from baseball savant in there and it's a lot of ground balls to the six hole uh, so between third base and shortstop and you know in the minor leagues for whatever reason they haven't started shifting him um, in the big leagues he probably gets shifted fairly quickly or at least a defensive adjustment um, his batting average on balls in play is up over 400 it's just not sustainable that way um, and he's not walking a ton he's not hitting for any power and so um in, in, in my opinion, he's a defensive shift away from being um, pretty well, not worthless, but um, very invaluable offensively. Um, his defense speaks for itself. Um, but with Billy Hamilton right now, who's not, you know, his on base is over 300 and it's actually trending up his on base percentages. So um, with Billy Hamilton, the goal is to trade him, right? And so. Um, as long as he is trending up offensively, which his on base is, um, I think he's going to get the the call, and we will see Bubba as long as he's healthy. Um, I just hope Royals fans don't have this impression that man he is raking, he's killing the ball. I mean, he, he he's batting three fifty, okay, but he's hitting a lot of ground balls that big league infielders are going to get to. Yeah, I feel like some of this is just kind of like the backup quarterback phenomenon where the team's not playing well, and so we look at Omaha and like anyone who has even decent numbers is like, we'll call them up and let's see what they can do. And, you know, there's, there's, there's some logic to that. I think, you know, there's more upside with a guy like Bubba Starling than, than with Billy Hamilton. And obviously Starling has a greater chance of being part of the future than Hamilton. But on the other hand, you know, I think you're right. They have to actually evaluate as to whether Bubba Starling is actually playing well and, uh, and, and is capable of uh, handling a promotion to the major leagues. You know, Sean, you know, knowing <laughs> – how long it took them to call up Nicky Lopez after 
you know, his numbers were, you know, a lot better than Bubba Starling's. And, and also there's not really a clear place for Bubba to play, you know, unless they're going to bench Billy Hamilton, Hamilton, which doesn't seem quite likely. Uh, I mean, doesn't seem likely that they'll call him up anytime soon. I mean, do you think we'll see Bubba anytime this summer? No, I <clears throat> I believe he exists when I see him in the major leagues because, uh, I mean, like, haven't we been talking about this for a while now? Like last year we thought, oh, he'll finally get a call because who the hell else are they going to play? And I don't know. It's just been, oh, he'll get injured or something. I don't know. So it remains to be seen. I know that someone just wrote um, maybe yesterday or today that it really seems likely like this is going to be his year. I think it was like almost certainly they said, but uh, I mean, we'll 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 see it when we see it. Yeah, and I kind of feel like he he probably should have some extended success because like we've seen him have a couple good weeks before only to kind of fade back <laughs> yeah. to earth. But um, on the other hand, he, what is he 26, 27 years old now? So, uh, you know, it's kind of like, you know, put up or shut up time for him. So uh, I don't know. I, I think I think yeah, I think Alex is right that Billy Hamilton is they're probably wanting to trade him. On the other hand, I don't know how much they're going to get for for Hamilton. He wasn't traded last summer when the Reds were out of it, and um, you know his numbers kind of are what they are. He's always been kind of the same kind of hitter, a light hitter that can be an okay defensive replacement and pinch runner for you. But I, you know, I don't know how much value that has, and and um, you know he's making five and a half million dollars this year, so the Royals may have to eat some of that. But uh, yeah, I, I imagine if they're able to move Hamilton or at least cut ties with him in July. That, that feels like when they'll call up Bubba Starling, but, um, you know, who knows if Bubba will still be hitting by then or if he's healthy yeah. by then. And they've still got Phillips. They've still got Bonifacio. Um, Bonifacio is still on the 40-man, right? And, and we'll probably um, see Merrifield in center field more now with Lillian second base. I don't think Bonifacio is on the 40. I think they yeah, maybe he. Um, but, so I ran into a guy recently who um, knows Brett Phillips, and there, there was a situation when Billy Hamilton – got hurt and i guess brett phillips was in the car on the way back to kansas city and they had told him to turn around so um for for royals fans listening think man bubba's coming bubba's coming a he'd have to be added to the 40 so they have to dfa someone b brett phillips is already on the 40 and from a guy who has really no reason to lie to me um it sounds like brett phillips was going to be their first guy up so i don't even know if bubba starling uh, point would be the first guy that called up to the big leagues um, so again, I think we're going to see him just for the just for the fan aspect of it uh, by the end of the year. But don't get you know super excited that Bubba is coming and he's coming now because he he just most likely isn't. Yeah, the thing Bonifacio is on the forty man. Just so the listeners, I don't want to mislead okay. you. I'm here. I'm here to tell the truth and nothing but the truth. <laughs> and the other thing with Phillips too is you can you can bring him up and, and then send him back down. Whereas Starling, if you brought him up and you wanted to send him back down, you'd have to clear clear him through waivers, which maybe he'd pass through easily because he's a 26-year-old that hasn't really hit in the minors before, but maybe someone takes it, you know, we know that Dade Moore is kind of wary of, uh, of exposing his talent to the waiver wire, so, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if, if they would call him up unless they felt like there was a spot for him to play and they're going to play him in center field for the rest of the year, uh, whereas Phillips, I think he's a guy that could could fill in for a couple of weeks and then send him back down. So yeah, I, I can see Phillips being, being ahead of Bubba and at least in that regard. So, but we'll have to see. I think, I think Alex is right. We'll see Bubba some at some point this year. Um, I think 
probably before September call-ups, but if nothing else, by September call-ups. So look for Bubba Starling at Kauffman Stadium this summer. Uh, I did want to kind of keep an eye on the minor leagues a little bit. We had some news today with Chris uh, Bubik, a 2018 uh, draft pick out of Stanford last year. He was called up, promoted from uh, Lexington to Wilmington, so from low A ball to high A ball, and he joins a killer rotation at Wilmington. He joins Daniel Lynch, Brady Singer, and Jackson Coar, three of his fellow 2018 draftees, to form uh, what should be a fantastic rotation. Bubik was dominating in Lexington. He had a 2.08 ERA, 75 strikeouts, and just 38 innings. Sean, this seems like quite a rotation. I know the Royals are kind of hoping to be competitive by around 2021, and it kind of a lot of that rests on these arms. Does there does a performance so far this year by those that quartet of pitchers give you a little bit of more hope for the the minors, or is it like or for the future? Should I say, or is it still kind of too early to tell with these guys? Um, I mean, part of it is like, I mean, all right, so. If you make the comparison to where the farm system was, 2000, this must have been 2009, maybe 2010, um, when you had guy. Um, anyways, um, you had guys like, um, you know, Mike Montgomery, John Lamb, Chris, oh, Chris Dwyer, um, and Danny Duffy. Even though obviously Duffy made it, um, the real jump for them was when they got to Double A. Um, and those were high schoolers, uh, drafted as high schoolers, as opposed to, you know, the current four, which are, you know, two from uh, two from Florida. I mean, you've got major college pitchers here who should be doing well against um, minor leaguers. I mean, imagine right now if you put um, like, you know, Daniel Lynch or, or Singer up against, um, you know, internally MJ Melendez or Suli Matias or. Um, Nick Prado, who are just swinging through everything. I mean, it, you would expect domination, um, you know. So, uh, really, I think the test is for them is going to be when they get to Double A. Um, it is nice to see. Obviously, you don't want them to suck in Wilmington, um, but part of it is, you know, got to be the park. I mean, Wilmington is one of the best pitchers' parks, kind of in the entire nation, um, as far as in the minor leagues go. And then, of course, you've got these, you know, should be advanced college arms. So, I think it's a little bit of mix. Um, you obviously, like I said, you don't want them to see them. You know, you know, you'd rather them do very, very good than, than awful. Um, but I think really we're going to get a fig. We'll figure out what they are uh, when they get to Double A, which you know should be I think in the next few weeks, give or take. Yeah, it's not just Bubik who's dominating this year. Brady Singer has a two point four seven ERA with a strikeout per inning. Daniel Lynch got off to a but he has a three point four five ERA with a strikeout per inning, and uh, Koar has a two point seven two ERA with a strikeout per inning. So pretty strong performances from those three as well. Alex. What's I mean, like Sean expects them to be promoted pretty soon. I mean, is that kind of what you anticipate as well? And what's what do you see as kind of their timetable and getting to the big leagues at this point? Yeah, so like like you were just saying, Singer went out. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday night, so Singer goes out, just fired seven scoreless. His ERA is down to two point one three, which would lead the Carolina League if he was uh, eligible for qualified number of innings, which he might be after that outing. Um, but it, like I don't know. It was the kind of the same way with Chris Bubick, where um, over if you you know I, over at Royals Farm, I was for the last three four starts of his. It's just it's just kind of this repetitive. What do we have left to prove? Chris Bubick was way too advanced for the hitters he was facing, um, and Brady Singer right now is is kind of the, in the same way, and Jackson Kowar really, where they're just too advanced. I'm not saying that they're going to go to Double A and immediately succeed because they deserve 
to be at double A. They're just too good for the level. Brady Singer tonight, um, that he doesn't even really have plus plus stuff like Coar does, but he just goes out there, ho hum, seven scoreless, six strikeouts, one walk, um, get off the field. And then Jackson Coar reportedly throwing upwards of 99 miles an hour with his changeup. I mean, I really don't care how polished he is as a pitcher. That's too good for advanced day ball. Um, advanced day ball, the Carolina League, I think, in terms of like um, if you compared them to the SEC or comparable. So he's throwing 99, his off speed. Like, it's just too good. He's been pitching this way for three or at this level, I guess, for three years. Um, and so really, I don't know. And I'm not saying the Royals are wrong in this. I just don't know what their formula is. Like, what are, what are the Royals waiting for? Because if you just asked me in a vacuum and said, hey, Singer, Bubik, Coar, they're ready to go. I say, okay, send them. And really without hesitating. Um, Daniel Lynch, who I think could very well be the best of them, best of the four. Uh, his command's been a little spotty. So if he wants, if they want to keep him in Wilmington, I have no qualms about that for now. But um, Bubik's promotion was long overdue. I think Singer's ready to go. I think Coar's ready to go. And, um, you know, in terms of when the Royals moved them, it's impossible to know. But if it was me, I'd be ready to move all three of them right now. Um, no questions asked. And it seems like usually around the time of the draft is when you start seeing some some promotions as they kind of make room for some of the newer players and you start seeing some of the guys get, get released. So maybe we'll see around draft time in a couple of weeks that – those guys will start getting moved up because it does seem like, yeah, they need more of a challenge than they're getting. And, and certainly I think the Royals want to be aggressive promoting some of these guys, especially with the timetable they're talking about. Um, they're going to want to get these guys in the big leagues in the next, you know, probably year or two. Uh, so getting them to, if they can get up to double a, you know, by the all-star break, that's going to be a big, uh, you know, a very accelerated timetable for those guys, which, Right now, they're meeting the challenge, so I don't, you know, it doesn't seem like anything wrong with that so far. Uh, for as good as the pitching has been at Wilmington, though, the hitting has been as bad. I mean, uh, and I know, Alex, you noticed some numbers about Wilmington. You know, I, I'm just looking at some of these numbers. Their, their best hitter with any significant playing time, as far as OPS, is Brewer Hicklin with a 717 OPS. The, the team OPS is 592. And this is not a team with, like, just scrubs filling out the organization. This is like some of the top pro- hitting prospects in the organization. You have outfielder Suli Matias. You have first baseman Nick Prado. You have catcher MJ Melendez. What's going on at Wilmington, Alex? We know it's a tough hitter's park, but is there maybe some real cause for deep concern there? Yeah, I think there is. And so I want to give some context before I just start throwing out you know, uh, alarm bells. Um, ever since 2016 and beyond, I d- didn't bother – looking past 2016 but the offense in the carolina league is on a steady decline so in 2016 the average team averaged four and a half runs a game that number is down to 4.3 in 2019 um in 2016 the average team ops was 717 the average team ops today is 688 um and going back the worst team ops that the carolina league has seen um, since 2016, it was 6:30 by Myrtle Beach. Um, right now, the second worst o- team OPS in the Carolina League is the Myrtle Beach again, but it's 6:50. And like you just said, Wilmington's team OPS is 5.92, so almost 60 points lower than the second worst team in the league. And so, when you when you put it into context, yes, they're struggling. Yes, it's been a very slow start. 
but it's not just been for them this year. It's a historically slow start. And again, like you said, it's it's all of the top hitting prospects. Like this entire rebuild it was coming into the year based around the core at Wilmington. It was Nick Prado, first round pick, MJ Melendez, second round pick, Suli Matias, huge power, big international signing. Kyle Isbell, third round pick, who was tearing the cover off the ball before he got hurt, I assume will you know, those guys are are failing miserably and it's you know, I think it's swing oriented because they're still drawing their walks. Like it appears that they're seeing the ball fine, and then they go to swing at it, and, and a lot of times they're not even close. Um, Suli Matias hasn't homered in over a month. Um, MJ Melendez hit a baseball 450 feet the other day, um, but he's hitting like 068 in his last 10 games or so. And so, um, you know, I don't ever, I don't think I get too rash in my takes sometimes. And so when I say this, I hope it carries a little weight with with listeners in that if this continues, and let's say this goes all year, and we look at the end of the year and MJ Melendez is hitting 140 and Matias is hitting 120 and Prado at 150, um, you could see some people get fired for that. And that that could be um, some serious overhaul in the front office because they cannot afford for those those hitters, that group there in Wilmington, uh, to be this bad. And they have been historically awful, even if they are two years younger than league average. Yeah, you know, we know that Wilmington's Frawley Stadium has been a tough park to hit in, but yeah, those historic numbers I think add a lot of context. And it's not—it's not even just you know—it's a big ballpark that's tough to hit in. I mean, I'm looking at some of these strikeout rates: Brewer Hicklin, thirty percent; Nick Prado, thirty-six percent; Suli Matias, forty-two point eight; MJ Melendez, forty-three percent strikeout rate. Sean, I mean that. That to me is screams there's something wrong more than just the stadium. Um, you know what? What's your what's kind of your take on how how bad the hitters are struggling at Wilmington right now? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you nailed it. I mean, like there was like a Babbitt issue, or if like um, I think when we saw Khalil Lee, I'm, I might get this wrong, but I think when Khalil Lee went from Lexington to Wilmington, his ISO, his isolated slugging, dropped a bit, um, and you could you know you could blame that on. Um, just the move from a really good hitter's park to really bad hitter's park um, from uh, Frawley or from Whitaker Bank to Frawley. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, strikeouts, um, they're walking a bit, which is nice. But, you know, strikeouts and then the power and the swinging strike rate and the plate discipline, like that's for the most part um, going to be park agnostic. Um, you know, some parks do have. Uh, different part factors when it comes to strikeouts but i mean not enough that it would turn you know someone into a plus 40 percent strikeout rate um or you know plus 30 and so i mean part of it part of it's definitely kind of wilmington um but most of it i would say is just um you know matthias has always had um contact issues uh melendez i think is the same but uh as opposed to matthias who's have actually legit has issues with um, swinging outside the zone and lack of bad control and contact. Melendez, I think, is more has a bit of an idea at the plate, um, but um, similar contact issues. And then you've got Prado, who of the three probably has the best idea of what he's doing at the plate. But, you know, you're still looking at um, whatever it was, a plus 30 percent strikeout rate. And, you know, that's going to be a contact issue as well. So um, it's a bit of a mix. And there's there's some positive that they're not like 
Um, you know, not to disparage Mondesi, but you know, Mondesi's running a 27% strikeout rate and a sub five walk rate. So, I mean, if it was 40% strikeout rate, you know, 3% walk rate, okay, that's just absolutely miserable. Not that it's much better, but at least there's some positive um, with it. But yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of uh, it's a step back for them for sure. Yeah, and I don't know what the weather's been like in Carolina. I mean, maybe it's been you know bad weather to start the year. And I feel as, like they have had a bunch of rain delays, uh, more than normal. Obviously, the Carolinas are always rainy yeah. uh, during the spring, but I feel like there's been a bunch of games delayed more more so than most years. Yeah, so maybe they'll, they'll warm up a little bit as the weather warms up. Hopefully that's the case, but uh, yeah, definitely if the Royals want this rebuild to work, they're going to need some of those bats to, to definitely get better. One name that I did see on <laughs> Wilmington's stat line that, that did remind me, uh, because he did retire this week, Martin Gasparini, the young young man who uh, signed, I believe, as a 16-year-old out of Italy. Interesting, yeah. uh, interesting uh, experiment. They gave they gave him a million-dollar bonus. Blazing speed. Always had that speed, but always had trouble kind of making contact. He uh, he had 50 plate appearances with Wilmington this year before his retirement. Struck out 52% of the time. Walked 2% of the time. Yeah. Uh, and hit 122. So that's probably a good sign to maybe you should hang him up. At a weighted runs created plus of negative one, which I wasn't even quite sure was possible because I think all three of us combined have a weighted runs created plus of zero, yeah. right? So uh, I had I had Gasparini as the Royal 17th best prospect in 2014, um, which at that point he had a 96 WRC plus. So at least he was doing something, and he was super young, and I think he was still playing shortstop. Yeah, I feel like he actually had a decent year at a very young age and he had that speed and so you thought yeah. and he was still a shortstop back then which he was never a very good defensive shortstop but yeah I feel like there was at one point there was some kind of buzz about him uh, it didn't work out like like so many guys but um, definitely an interesting experiment and I always love guys like that that are just a little bit different like that Come, you know, finding guys from Italy I mean if it had worked it would have been a really cool story but uh, it unfortunately didn't but uh, let's take a break right there when we come back we're going to talk a little bit about the draft that's coming up in a few weeks so stick around all right we're back and the the draft will be in a few weeks now so we're going to start ramping up our draft coverage uh it'll take place june 3rd through the 5th the royals will have the number two overall picked as a courtesy of losing 104 games last year it will be their highest uh position in the draft since 2007 when they took mike moustakas second overall now, the Orioles have the first overall pick, and they're expected to take catcher Adley Rutschman out of Oregon State. So who, who does that leave for the Royals? And, Sean, you wrote an article this week about some names to know for the Royals at number two. Do you want to give us maybe just a few of the top names and then a brief overview of each of those guys? Yeah, sure. Um, as you mentioned, Adley Rutschman's first overall Oregon State catcher. Um, he's going to get the Matt Weeders kind of comps. And, it's decent, but uh, Rushman, I think, is a better catcher, and he's kind of an all-around guy. Um, sometimes you get the comparison of, like, is, is he as good as Bryce Harper or, or David Price or Stephen Strasburg coming out? And No, probably not, but that's not a derogative towards Rushman, who's really, really good. Um, you know, those other guys were just incredibly good. So I think it seems like he's going to be the first guy to go. Um, the Orioles are going to call his name. There's been some rumors um, – and I'm not sure if I believe him, but there's been some rumors saying that the Orioles will try to underslot 
and take maybe Andrew Vaughn or like a JJ Blade. Um, but and then you know that will leave Rushman to go to the Royals, which the Royals should absolutely take it, and I assume they will. Um, I can't imagine. You know, some people might point to the current catching group um, with like Melendez and Perez and maybe Gallagher and, and Nick Dini um, or uh, uh, Vioria, but I think Rushman would get taken in that scenario. Um, after that, the consensus kind of number two is uh from uh is bobby witt jr um son of former major league pitcher bobby witt um bobby witt jr um is from uh colleyville high colleyville heritage high school um in texas um kind of kind of something a skill set that the royals do like uh you've got a guy who's going to stay up the middle uh very good shortstop um has you know very good power um above average to plus um good speed one of the better athletes in the draft um the only question and it invariably comes down to this the only question is the hit tool um where uh maybe seven eight months ago it was a little more in question maybe last spring going into this summer um the the previous summer i'm sorry um so spring of 18 into summer of 18 um there were the concerns about his hit tool and kind of where it ultimately play um but then he kind of, uh, you know, calmed those fears just a bit, and um, it's been better this spring. So you've got a guy who's arguably right now um, four-plus tools with, you know, not impossible to see the fifth tool, um, the hit tool in this case, um, end up being a, you know, 45, 50, maybe 55 if you're pushing it. I'm probably unlikely to be a 60. Um, but anyways, you've got a guy, you know, uh, that the, the Royals love the type, um, you know, good speed up the middle, uh, good defender, you know, has power. Um, he is going to be 19 on draft day. That's been the big knock against him. Um, you know, historically, uh, prep guys who have been 19 or older, um, have done worse than the younger guys. Um, Bubba Starling is a good one to point to. And uh, as I mentioned in my article, um, about names to know for the draft, I compared Bubba Starling a bit because Starling kind of sounded exactly like that had four ready, uh, plus tools, but was missing out on that all important fifth tool, the hit tool. So, um, there's going to be, you know, there's a comparison there, but, um, just like Starling was, uh, he was a consensus top, you know, five, maybe even really top three, um, at the time. And one of the better draft prospects, um, in a while, but, you know, obviously didn't hasn't worked out can't say it didn't but it hasn't at least yet um with junior is still a consensus you know at at least top five prospect um so let's say even if the royals do end up taking a mini bust it's tough to blame the royals for that it's tough to blame a scouting director for any one decision um you know if you combine all the others there's an issue but uh if you know if they do take with junior and you know five years from now he fails because the hit tool never comes around hard to blame that on him because uh, hard to blame that on the royalist organization necessarily just that alone because he was a consensus guy um and then the other guy that really is in conversation to go to the Royals um, is Andrew Vaughn, uh, Cal first baseman, University of California first baseman. Um, Andrew Vaughn, my favorite guy in the whole draft, the guy I think the Royals should take, um, either him or C.J. Abrams, um, a shortstop out of Georgia. But um, I like Vaughn the most. Uh, you're talking about a guy who um, you could be looking at a future 60-hit tool, 60-ish, maybe maybe on a good day, 70 in BP. Um, call it 70 raw, but probably more like 60-ish game power. Um, he, he 
the big knock on him obviously is that he's right-handed um and he's a first baseman um so he's gonna bat right throw right so right away if he does fail you're talking about a guy who's gonna have to be on the short side of the platoon only facing lefties and then of course he's got very little defensive value if you keep him at first base and obviously if you demote him down to dh which the royals could do you lose even more um so i don't think i think that's those concerns are a little um overplayed given that i mean you've got a guy and um, it's not Vladimir Guerrero Jr., as I kind of said in the comments um, a bit ago. But, um, you know, if you look at Vlad Jr., pretty dang close hit tool and power. Um, Vlad's, Vlad's probably got like 75 raw or something. But uh, very good hit tool, very good power. But uh, you've got a guy who's probably going to move off across the diamond from third base to first base eventually. Um, but, you know, nobody's knocking Vlad Jr. for that. And like I said, Vaughn's not as good as a hitter as that. But... Um, he is going to, at least in theory, only play one first, one uh, play first base. Um, but I think it's not um, inconceivable to see him move to third base or possibly um, right field. He did pitch for Cal um, early on. He was a reliever a bit too. So um, that's my guy. I like Vaughn um, of the of the top two between Witt Jr. and Vaughn, with Rushman being number one, obviously. Yeah. So the, the the buzz with the Royals has been that they've been heavily linked to Witt. For, for quite some time, and, and, and every mock draft, I think, pretty much has the Royals taking with at this point. And he has been, like you said, the consensus number two, pretty much. There's been some exceptions to that, um, but he's been pretty consistently the number two prospect in this draft. Baseball America has him ranked number two right now. MLB Pipeline has him linked number two. Uh, Alex, what's kind of your impression of Witt so far? I know there are some concerns about his hit tool. Do you feel like that's something that can develop and do you trust the Royals to be the team to develop that? So, uh, you know, based on the track record of, of Moose and Haas and, and developing prep players early on, you know, in, in theory, you'd, you'd think, oh, what's the next guy like that? But then you look at Prado and Melendez and Matias and all the problems they're having. And I guess really my point is, why should I trust this current player development group to, to bring the best out of wit? Um, and that's my thing too. Let's say the Royals just had an average farm system. Everybody is playing well. Then at that number two pick, I would absolutely scream from the mountaintops, go get Bobby Witt Jr. Take the highest ceiling you can possibly acquire and then add him to your, to your farm system. But with the way that Prado and Melendez and Matias are not hitting, you want to add another guy who fits the same profile with maybe a questionable hit tool, but, loads of power, loads of athleticism, loads of speed. Let's just hope the hit tool develops. Um, I mean, let's just say that on the off chance you draft Witt and he goes to Wilmington in a year or whatever and does the same thing that Prado's doing. That's another pick that you've just, you know, kind of gone by the wayside. And and I'm not saying Witt, that it's even probable that he'll do that. But of their options, Witt is the most likely to be that guy in my opinion. And so – um, the Royals have put themselves in a position where they have to hit on this pick. Like they, if they miss, everybody gets fired, in my opinion, because the farm system has been very shaky. And if it gets worse with the number two pick, and I say everybody gets fired. That's probably a little rash, but there will be people who get fired. Um, and so, if it was me, and you wanted to, and you, know, they were asking me who I would pick. Um, I would tell them to continue with their trend. Last year, they made a conscious decision, and they can say they didn't do this, and they, they're lying. Um, that they, they made the decision to draft college pitching. And so 
if it was me with the number two pick this year, I would take Nick Lodolo, left-handed pitcher out of TCU. Um, I think he's a safe pick, and that if if he was added to the system right now, he'd be my number one prospect in the system because I think he's a surefire big league starter at some point down the line. Um, and he has the chance, in my opinion, to be an ace. I don't know if it's a great chance, but he has some ceiling. It's not like he's limited in what he can be. Um, and the Royals have made it clear that's something they wanted to do last year. So I would say continue that trend. Um, with 10 stop and all, you can't have too many pitching, pitching prospects. Like, you know, um, even with the core from last year, if you add Lodolo to that core, then you have Lodolo, Lynch, Bubik, Coar, Singer. I mean, that is a squad moving through the minor leagues. And then, I mean, if you think about trades the Royals have made in the past, like let's say that all five of them become really good big league starting pitching options. A, that's not a problem. That's a great problem to have. B, in trades in the major leagues recently, it's frontline starting pitchers who bring the most in return. So even if you think that you know, we have too many of these guys, well, that's fine. Trade one of them later. So if it was me, I would go with the lefty out of TCU – um, if you had to have a, a position player, um, right now I'm kind of leaning towards uh, Corbin Carroll. He's a high floor, potentially high ceiling, one of the best hit tools in the draft. He's a speedy center fielder out of Seattle. Um, but but Witt Jr., as much as I would love to have a player like that, I think you have to have the right type of farm system for it. And the Royals farm system this year has the, the core, again, with Melendez, Prado, and, and Matias has totally bombed. And so, you know, there's there's always a good chance those guys come back. They very well could be slumping. But, man, like if, if they don't and if Bobby Witt Jr. should fall down the same hole, man, I don't know. The Royals have not – when's the last time the Royals developed a high school kid? You know, Jake Junis, and he got a lot of money. So, I, man, I just I, – I, I balk at the Royals taking a high school kid it it scares the crap out of me, um, especially a guy with a lower with a higher range of outcomes. But it seems like what Wit Junior's where they're leaning, and um, so I guess we just roll the dice and see. And I think Matthew Lamar kind of made uh, a point similar to that last year around this time, and he argued actually for for going heavy with college bats because the Royals did have a little bit of a problem developing some of these high school players, and the college bat would be kind of the safest option. And, you know, like you said, you know, going with the college pitchers, um, certainly, you know, the Royals could use more arms. I think there's always the concern about injury there. Uh, but, but yeah, absolutely, if you have a stockpile of pitching, I mean, man, pitching is a currency of baseball, right? That's what Dayton Moore always says. And you can always fill holes elsewhere on the field with that pitching. Uh, what I've seen at the most of the prospect list so far, though, Sean, is that at least five of the top five or six players in this draft. It's a very hitter-heavy draft. Am I wrong about that? Like, I think most people expect the first five or six players to most likely be hitters. Um, is, yeah. there, is there a pitcher you you think could sneak their way into the top five or even as high as number two with the Royals? 
Um, no, probably not. Um, I think, let me see. So on my, I wrote my write-up um, on the names to know. I have an aggregate kind of draft ranking um, from four or five of the bigger kind of sites that do it. So I wrote it in average order um, from, you know, uh, descending. Uh, so one, two, three, four, five, six. So the seventh best player is Nick Lodolo, according to that aggregate ranking. Um, and so, I mean, they'd have to pass on all these guys and, um, you know, I don't think there's any way that, that it gets there. Um, and, and to echo, um, Alex's sentiments, I mean, I like Lodolo a, a bit too. Um, I think I like Alec Manoa out of West Virginia a little bit more. Um, but also I think, a pitcher. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, right. Right-hander. Lodolo is a left-hander. Um, I like him a little bit. Um, but I think those are the two guys that if there was a possibility and the thing with Lodolo is that he signed um, with the Pirates a few years ago, excuse me, he got drafted by the Pirates a few years ago, didn't sign with them, um, went back, was awful, came, uh, entered his junior year and was a lot better. Um, so I think if I would never play slot games with number two overall, but I think you could maybe see if the Royals wanted to do that. Yeah, they could take someone like Lodolo, who's kind of only the past four or five months has really been better than what he was, or Alec Manoa, um, or a guy, uh, Corbin Carroll, as um, Alex had mentioned. Um, you would still get some okay value at that, and then you could figure out what to go. I think the only problem with that idea is uh, the Diamondbacks have four picks between the Royals' second between the number two and the number 44, maybe three picks. Um, and so the Diamondbacks are just going to sit there and wait for anybody to try and um, be moved down, and they're just going to snag them. So um, I can't see a pitcher going too early. I think it's going to be Witt, Jr., or Vaughn um, with likely Witt, Jr. I did want to explore that, I guess, a little bit, because I know that was mentioned today in a, in a thread about Andrew Vaughn, about possibly taking a guy under slot at number two and – like the Royals did when they drafted Hunter Dozier and then hoping to find a guy later in the draft and sign him for overslot, um, you know, a guy that would you know otherwise be a top 15 or 20 pick. Uh, I guess you're, you're saying that that's probably not something they're, they're going to do with number two. It'd be tough. I mean, I, um, I know everybody points to the Astros with Carlos Correa. Um, I, uh, oh, wait, no, sorry. The yeah, Astros with Carlos Correa. Um, uh, I was thinking of Byron Buxton, but, but, I, I know that people point to that, but like that was good. And then like, they still had to go take McCullers and then, um, you know, or, and develop them. And it, that was kind of a risk. And the reason why he was knocked really down the same thing with Manaya, um, with the Royals took Dozier at eighth and then waited for Manaya to fall. I mean, you just never know, especially, I mean, I don't want to under slot at the number two, um, position because to begin with, I mean, you you automatically save money if if you're drafting in the maybe the top five you automatically save money because there's no reason for you to offer your pick more than the next slot so the Royals probably shouldn't offer Vaughn uh, or Vaughn or Witt Junior whoever they end up taking um really much more than the number three pick I I have to look at the numbers but I mean I think off the top that saves you by half a million um, give or take so I think that they really won't have to do that. Um, because I mean, what's what junior going to do? He's going to turn down six or five and a half million, um, and then go to, you know, Oklahoma for three years to try to now go number one overall three years later. Um, no. So I, I think that, I think that's the thing is that, um, 
you kind of de facto save some money. Um, and I just wouldn't screw around with a second overall pick. Not when your farm system is um, kind of, you know, as weak as it is. Yeah, and let me let me clarify too what I was what I was saying. And, and I know Sean, you know this, but just for the listeners, um, is I wasn't saying more or less that they should underslot. I just think that you know very legitimately there's a there's a chance that you know somebody like Ladola or Carroll is better than Wet Junior. And oh sure, maybe maybe it's a, maybe it's a safer pick, not 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 for the money and and more just for the safety of man. Like you have to get good value here and, and i worry personally about wit's floor so i, I yeah I'm sure the listeners know that my 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 uh concern here was not the money no i hear you and i want to and a little bit with uh, to touch back on matt uh matthew lamar's article um i i i thought the uh, the article is really well written i think obviously matt does great work um i do i don't like the idea though of i kind of reject the premise of that like the Royals have to um, take college pitching because they can't develop high school pitching or, or, or even you know high school hitting. That's not a problem with the, – the problem in that is you aren't developing high school hitting or, or high school pitching. You fix that. You don't go take something. You don't throw away half of you know the demographics when it comes to baseball drafts, college pitchers, college hitters prep pitchers prep hitters um you don't throw away two of those just because you can't develop them go fire the people that can't develop them because every other team mostly is able to develop at least one of those demographics so go fix that don't avoid that um you know repair where you can so i I think that i think that's um the big thing that i i want to take away from that article um as well and kind of point out i think I did want to ask you, that does remind me of, a, of an article that came out. I, for, I apologize, I forget where I read this. It was probably either Rustin Dodd or, or Lynn Worthy. But um, the Royals, I guess for the draft, when they prepare for the draft, they actually group guys by college pitchers, by college yeah. hitters, by high school hitters, by high school pitchers, not in one comprehensive list. I just wanted to get maybe yeah. your reaction to that or what you're, what, you know, is that, does yeah. that, does that sound like it's a commonplace tactic no. or is that? something that's that was uh that was baseball america, baseball america that. Okay. um and yeah i mean that's like i hate like when i go make my list i hate putting players in these ordinal rankings um just because it's it's a cop-out to call someone 2a 2b 1a 1b whatever um so, you know you have to have some sort of ranking and i don't know how you can rank because if you think about it if i don't know how you rank the number one college pitcher against your number six, mm-hmm. you know, uh, prep hitter, if it falls like that, if the top five prep hitters go. Um, because even in the end, you have to put them in an order because you, you, you're given the decision between taking, you know, the number one college pitcher, the number two college hitter, the number four college, or the number four prep hitter, the number four um, prep pitcher. You now have four people left on the top of your board. You have to rank them. You have to pick – whoever you pick is who you would have ranked above them. So I don't understand – in the end, you're just making it an ordinal ranking to begin with. You're ranking everybody anyways. You're just making it way more harder, and I think the last thing that you want when you've got the whatever three or four minutes to pick is complications um, when it comes up. You know, uh, you, you want to have your decisions. The, the reason you spend all this time making draft boards, you know, you you start scouting for the 2019 draft as soon as the 2018 draft ends, uh, give or take a week or so. 
Um, so, I mean, no, I, I, I don't understand that. And from the Baseball America article, it sounds like they are, if not the only one of the only to do that. It sounds like, you know, we know the Royals last year went into the draft, like you say, Alex, um, and they went very college heavy, uh, college pitcher heavy in the draft last year. And we'll see if they end up doing that with number two. It sounds like they probably won't, but we'll, we'll see. But Alex, do you see the team maybe still going heavy with college pitchers, even if it's not with the number two pick? Um, or will we kind of get back to more of a, a more balanced draft? And then what would you kind of do? What would you emphasize in this draft? Yeah, so I think they're going to get back to a more balanced um, approach here. And and I was I tweeted the other day. I can't remember whose account I tweeted it from. To be honest with you, um, but I was looking at a, a ranking of um, the pitchers in the Royal system two years ago versus this year, and like the the top pitching prospects in the system back then. It was after the two, 2017 draft. It was like Foster Griffin. And then, I, and then the reason I was looking this up was Evan Steele, who made his debut with Lexington last night. And then Scott Blewett and a, a few other guys who wouldn't crack the top ten right now. Um, like the Royals last year had had a weakness in their system with pitching like nothing I'd ever seen. And, and it, was, it, it was historically bad. And so now you have guys that are maybe your tenth best pitching prospect like Jonathan Bolin or Jonathan Heasley that are in Lexington. And those are legitimate maybe prospects and they're not your top pitching prospect. Right. And so um, they had to get themselves to that position to where, again, where John Heasley's not your top pitching prospect and, and they are, they're there now. So I think they'll go back to a more balanced approach. And again, they said they didn't do that on purpose last year. That that's not true. That's just objectively not true. Um, they did that on purpose, and, and I don't fault them for that. They had to do that on purpose. Uh, in in this draft specifically, um, being as as light as it is on the pitching side, their lower level hitters are are, are I don't know struggling. I guess, um, especially here here pretty soon, they're going to be moving guys like Michael Gigliotti. Uh, Nate Eaton will get called up eventually. Um, Reed Rollman, you know, the first baseman in Lexington, um, maybe just a guy. And so, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see them take some more chances on guys like Kyle Isbell. Kyle Isbell was, is maybe their top position prospect in the system right now. He was a third round pick last year. So, so some dudes like that who, um, some college guys who, if they, you tweak something here, find something there. Maybe we've got something, um, but but definitely a more balanced approach uh, than what we saw last year. Alex, you'd asked before we we came back from the break or after the break. Um, uh, the last high schoolers the Royals have taken um, that made uh, that had success and I'll consider just made the major leagues. It's uh, Cam Gallagher, um, Jake Newberry, and Jason Adam. And of course, Jason Adam had to go to the twins to to finally make it and then come back here so i mean it's 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 a very very short list of successful high schoolers um the royals have turned into and and cam gallagher if i remember correctly he was a second round pick so cam gallagher being a backup catcher in the big leagues you know you could even consider that a disappointment to an extent because he was a second round pick um so that's not like some development job that the Royals have done that was just, you know, great job by them. Jake Junis, everybody always says, oh, he's a 29th rounder. Okay, he almost got a million dollars signing, so he was not really a 29th rounder. Um, so again, he's a guy you kind of expect to have some success. 
Uh, Jake Newberry was a late-round high school pick, and now he's a reliever, so good by them. Uh, Jason Adam had those injuries, but that's we're not going to fault the Royals for that. But, man, ever since, like, what, 2009 when they drafted – oh, man, I can't remember who they drafted in 2009. And the, um, for the first pick, or for their first pick, was uh, second pick was Will Myers. Yeah, was that Aaron, Aaron Crow, I believe, was that year. Is that right? Yeah, but he, so he was a college kid out of Missouri. Don't remind us. Though, so, <laughs> so I mean, like back to '09, Will Myers was the last. That's the last success story we have for a high school kid. And he's a third round pick, and he was those ten. So, man, the Royals going back to prep players scares the life out of me. Um, and I will say, I was a huge Melendez fan coming into the year. He's still going to be rated as like my number one or two prospect, and I think he'll figure some stuff out. But, man, he's been bad in Wilmington, and the Royals just cannot afford to, to do that again. They can't go down this rabbit hole again. So um, I wish them luck if should they take Bobby Witt Jr., and I think there's a good chance that Bobby Witt Jr. is very good. But on the off chance that he's not, they just shot themselves in the foot potentially again yeah i do wonder if like the success of the college guys last year not just the pitchers but you know kyle isbell got hit really well uh and he's off to a little bit you know he's had some injuries this year but i wonder if that will maybe nudge them more towards the college guys this year the other thing i noticed from last year's draft aside from all the college arms is that they really went heavy with speed i mean they really didn't draft any power hitters at all i mean kyle isbell is probably the closest thing to a power hitter they 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 drafted uh, and I think that was part of their over, overall organizational philosophy of getting back to speed and defense. Uh, but now that they've seen maybe some success with offense with the, the long ball, I wonder if that might put it in their minds to maybe stress power a little bit more than they have in organizational development. But we'll see. And I wanted to point out who, <clears throat> excuse me, if you look at the roster, who are roughly the best hitters on the team right now? Hunter Dozier, college. Alex Gordon, college. Nicky Lopez, college. Whit Merrifield, college. Uh, Ryan O'Hearn, college. I mean, pretty much everybody that everybody loves. And I, I mean, <clears throat> well, I wouldn't say Jorge Soler is college. He had several seasons in Cuba. Um, you know, he wasn't just a, a, effectively a, an 18-year-old sign. I mean, he, he actually had some development in professional baseball. Um, so, I mean, I... College hitting has worked out so far for the Royals, at least on the roster. So the best player and arguably uh, the past, you know, 20 years for the Royals uh, is is a college hit, college guy. So yeah, And we'll see what they end up doing with the number two pick. It's, it's arguably the most important pick they've had in over a decade. So, um, uh, and again, we'll, we'll see if we'll find out on June 3rd. We'll definitely have a lot more draft coverage leading up to that, and I'm sure we'll have another uh, podcast uh, leading up to the draft, uh, talking about who the Royals might take, and of course after the draft, I think we'd be uh, we probably will have a, a sort of mini pod to, to talk about the the picks the Royals uh, have selected, the newest members of the Royals, and uh, and so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they what the Royals end up doing. So in the meantime, uh, we'll just have to watch Nicky Lopez, see how his progress goes as a big leaguer, and, and watch the Royals drop two out of every three games as they've been doing. Uh, <laughs> But uh, you know we have brighter times ahead of us. But uh, Alex, thanks so much for for being on with us. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Royals Farm Report and uh, where else we can find you online. Yeah, Royals Farm Report is a website I help run with a uh, former Royals review writer Patrick Brennan, uh, covering the Royals farm system. Um, you know we've we've we decided there was a niche that needed to be filled, and 
We have a site dedicated strictly to the minor league affiliates of the Kansas City Royals. Um, so anytime you feel like you need to figure out, learn about a prospect, head over. We got um, stuff written up, just about all of them. Um, I do want to plug a, a, a new writer of ours named Jordan Gish. He has been every week um, updating a chart of all the stats for all of the pitchers the Royals drafted in 2018. It's a nice, convenient place. You can find all those guys in one spot. Um, again, that's over at RoyalsFrontport.com. Jordan's been doing a great job for us. So, uh, yeah, that's where you can find me. Yeah, actually, he had a, yeah, I've, I really appreciate his stuff. And and definitely follow Royals Farm Report on Twitter. They do a great job updating, like, minor league action. Like, usually during the weekday, if you're if you're bored at work, uh, you can usually – there's usually one a minor league game going on, and they do a great job, you know, highlighting what's going on and, and uh, what, what the transactions and, and uh, who's getting promoted. Uh, so definitely – follow them on twitter and go to the website as i do on a regular basis so sean anything you're up to uh not that we're gonna have uh more draft stuff like i said i love um love the draft uh and so i'm excited for that we'll have more stuff coming out um especially leading up to the draft um i think we'll have good coverage all that day and you know we all have a live thread for both the draft day one and then the afternoon picks um for days two and day three and did we do day four last year no it was only three three days of the draft yeah yeah, yeah. um but i think we had an open thread for day three for all the people who wanted to see who goes 1219th overall um we'll have a thread for you guys to discuss and i'm sure on draft day um we'll have the the twitter up and running um that's really about it. Just kind of keep an eye out for that. And, of course, uh, um going to be fuming about the Game of Thrones finale, just for, <laughs> you know, for the for the next several years. So I'm, I'm not ready to talk about it yet. But, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I do appreciate the draft coverage. I'm, I still remember the days when, like, they wouldn't even print, oh, like, yeah. who got drafted and what. I mean, uh, it, we've certainly come a long way. and. Royals Review is a great place to nerd out about the draft because we just go in, in into so much minutiae it'll yeah. make you just sick. So, how did um, you how did you find like it used to be like a conference call? Um, a well, so I even year. remember back in the yeah, day when like like the paper the next day would be like, oh yeah, here's our first pick, and then they would like tell you who else got drafted. Then uh, so when I was in college, uh, I knew a couple guys on the college team at Ohio State, one of whom was taken in the 16th round, and so we were. Oh. We were all huddled. I was like the only guy who had a computer in our apartment complex, and so we were huddled around my web, my uh, computer, just like hitting refresh on ESPN.com or ESPN or MLB.com. I think it was MLB.com, and just hitting refresh until he got drafted. My roommate um, had talked to a scout and thought there was a chance he might get drafted, so we kept. We actually had to stay on till the fiftieth or whatever round just to make sure he wasn't drafted, but uh, oh, nice. he ended up not. So no, he ended up not getting selected. When the Orioles took Jeff Austin, you, you you didn't find out until the next day. I think you yeah, had to wait for like Bob Dutton to report it the next day, as, uh, <laughs> or Dick Cagle, whoever it was back then. Yeah, yeah. Dick Cagle. But uh, yeah, it was a uh, it was a oh. different time. Yeah, people didn't care about the draft that much. You know, I, I've I've been doing a lot of research about uh, the '90s, uh, just looking back, and it's just crazy how quickly teams dra- uh, traded away their first round picks. Oh like, yeah, like they would tra- draft a guy, and then like the next year, be like, yeah, we'll just trade him for this middle reliever. It's like they just did not value prospects yeah. at all back then. It's kind of crazy, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. things are different now, and uh, yeah, join, uh, watch, go, come to Royals Review for all the draft coverage. So, Sean, why don't you uh, take us on out with? Uh, I guess any. Our, do you want to do the, the the regular? 
our quote, I, we're going to mix it up every time. Our quote <laughs> this week is going to be, love is the death of duty. Oh, no, you had to bring that back. <laughs> all right. Why do you think you came? Why, why do you think I came all this way? Oh, I couldn't, okay. couldn't between the two, but love is the death of duty. That's it. it